I found a subsegment of a subsegment of a market on yep. people who are not being addressed and valued in the, in the way that they should be, and I made them feel special. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Damon John. How are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me. What's happening? Yeah, thanks for coming. So always got to ask, you know, let's take us back to like three, four-year-old Damon John. Were you like, did you come out and start taking pitches, shutting people down like in, in kindergarten? Like where did it all start? Tell me about your childhood, your family, your parents. Yeah, I wish, right? You know, uh, born in Brooklyn, and, and, and shortly after that, my family and I would move to Queens, New York, and I went to actually Catholic school. Mm -hmm. My mom and dad scraped up enough money to send me to Catholic school, and happy little childhood, you know, kind of playing baseball on the block yep. uh, and doing all that good stuff. And parents ended up getting divorced when I was around 10 years old, but they were hardworking people. And I always, at that time, I really wanted to just start making money because I didn't want to make it that hard on my mother because hip hop was starting to really come around. I started falling in love with the music and I wanted to either buy an album, buy some sneakers that I thought, you know, were, were part of hip hop. And I just didn't, I felt bad seeing my mother work so hard, all these jobs to want to try to buy me this stuff and that she couldn't really afford. And I think that's where it really came from my initial desire to make money and simultaneously make money and be part of a culture was, was probably yeah. the, the first time. So that was, that was the little Damon John. And then, and then I would have like different forms of hustle, whether it's raking leaves in the fall or shoveling snow in the winter or finding bike parts that people threw out or dumpster diving. And by the time six months came around, I would have a bike to ride and then sell yeah. stuff like that. Nice. And so, so you were doing all these different hustles. And at what point did you do you like sort of your first, let's say business, like your first kind of thing that you stuck with that was repetitive. It sounds like you stuck with the bicycle building a little bit, but when did you first have that like exposure to selling something, growing something? Was it FUBU from the start or was there something before that? No, no, no. I actually had a livery service. It was like a van of like mm -hmm. a carpooling and in our neighborhoods uh, you could well, you not you could, you did, but you shouldn't have done it. You, you, you're really going against the city, but you would go to every bus stop and pick up people just like a bus, but you were just a small version of a bus and they would pay you a dollar to get off and get on and you would drive them because what we lived in, what they called a two fare zone in Queens. That's why the houses were a little cheaper because it was two fares. It was that you had to take a bus to the train and the train to get to the city. So everybody would get off of the train and they would need to take a bus into the, you know, obviously deeper into the boroughs, but we would be there, the vans, so we'd get there, we'd probably be there 100 feet or 200 feet early prior to the bus stop or so the women or people didn't have to walk that far. And when I drove you down the block, not only would I put, take you off the main block, but in the event there was 12 or 1 o'clock at night, I would take you two blocks into where your house was and just come back around yeah. and it was safer for people in general. So it was kind of like this cottage industry. And that was my first business, real business. And my business was, I was doing that from around 18 to around 22 years old. And how'd you get um, into that? Really like what? hard hours. What exposed you to that? Seeing the van drivers drive down the block and go, hey, man, why don't I just get my own damn van? And I, I'm curious, you know, so, how'd you get the money to get the van? Like, I always love, like, the details side of this. I worked at Red Lobster. I also worked at various other places. I saved up money. See, I was always somebody who was trying to leverage whatever I had, right? So whether it was I built a bicycle so that I could ride it and eventually sell it. It yep. was, let me get a van yep. because simultaneously I wasn't selling FUBU yet. I was trying to sell clothing, but simultaneously I was like, okay, the van, I have a car yep. on my way to go someplace. I can 
make $20 picking up people back and forth. And then I could take the seats out of the van and put clothing in there and go to a flea market one day. So I was always trying to maximize whatever I had. Yep. Got it. And curious because it's fun to see like the disparity here and a lot of different entrepreneurs, like how was school for you? You know, it sounds like you were hustling at a young age and trying to make money and help your mom out and buy stuff for yourself. Were you an A student all through high school or did you pay attention a lot or were you kind of the other end or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I was, I was pretty bad in school. I was a a C student. Well, first of all, I'm dyslexic and I wouldn't know that until late twenties, early thirties. So I had a challenge in obviously history and in English, but I, I excelled in science and math. And I wouldn't say excel, but I was a B student, but even because I was so discouraged of, you know, being yelled at from my father when he was around and my mother loved me and, and she treated me with a lot of respect. But because I was discouraged of the reading part of it, even my excelling in math and everything else, if there was any part of it that you had to read, I would shun away from it. So I wasn't really good at school, but what did that do? Well, you know, right around, I think it was 10th grade or 11th grade, they had something called a co-op program in my school where you can go work at a company one week and then you go to school every, you know, alternate week and you got, you got credits for it. So I ended up working as a messenger for a company called First Boston, which would end up being, you know, venture capitalists slash angel investors. And I ended up working there. And I, I think that that taught me a little bit about finance as well. And did that like expose you to the idea? Like, you know, when you started your first business, was that part of it? Like you're around this entrepreneurial kind of culture, at least people that invest in and you went, you know, I can do one of these. Okay. No, it wasn't the way that we think of investment traditionally today, like a lot of startups and having, and I was, I was a messenger, right? I wasn't open to a lot of the closed door conversations, but I did get to see people that look extremely wealthy, you know, and were extremely wealthy. I was on 53rd, 55th street. I think it was 55th or 53rd in Manhattan between Madison and park. And, you know, over here was Rolex over here was so forth. And I would see those private bankers or whatever, you know, pulling up in Maseratis and Lamborghinis and going to these stores and they all just worked in the building. And I was like, wow, there is money to be made doing this type of stuff. I'm not sure how to do it. Everybody, nobody in there looks like me, but there's money around here. Yep. Got it. All right. So going back, so you did the sort of did the band thing from 18 to 22. What happened after that? Well, you know, my life kind of all happened at the same time, right? I'll, you know, I just I, I really started FUBU in 1989, but I would close it three times from 89 to 92 because I ran out of capital. But that was, you know, when I was 20, right? 89, I was 20 years old. So I'm working FUBU, I'm working Red Lobster, and I'm working the van at the same time, yep. right? So they all kind of blended together. And then I decided to stop the van around 2021. I was burnt out from it. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making $300 a day but by the time i paid for insurance i had a beat up van by the time i paid to get the thing fixed and if only one department of transportation ticket if they caught me the department of transportation in the bus zone picking people up that was two thousand dollars in tickets so i realized that i wasn't netting anything after paying for everything and then i just quit that went back to red lobster and used the van to help me with fubu got it and so what what inspired you with FUBU? 20 years old, wanting to start fashion, like where did that come from? 
Well, it came from a frustration, a frustration that I was buying anything and everything that I could see in music videos. And I was told whether, I, you know, I believe 90% of it was rumors now that these fashion people disliked us. They did not want people of color, people who love hip hop, rapping, rappers, inner city kids, whatever you want to call us at the time, right? It was not yep. just the color. They didn't want us wearing their clothes. Um, but this was a new emerging music that I loved. Hip-hop was fairly, fairly new at that time. It was really only, from a commercial standpoint, it was probably only four years old, and I really was obsessed with it. So that was the frustration of saying, when can I, you know, who's ever going to make clothes for the people that love, you know, who they're making it for, you know, and, and, and the music. So just like I saw the van drive by and I said, maybe I can do that. I saw Cross Colors and another guy named Carl Kanai making clothes and I said, wow, I can do it too. So I, I'm not going to say that we were the first. We were not the first. We were inspired by uh, three or four other really great companies. And I love that because I, I, I see that kind of in common with a lot of successful people that it's why not me is a big part of the mindset. Like it's not that they're grandiose or they're hyper confident or even cocky about it. It's just they it's more of the opposite where they're just like, why can't I do that? They did it. Why can't I? Like it's it's a little bit more of like, a lack of barriers and a lack of mental blocking than it is thinking that you're going to be grandiose. So, so you start going into it. Did you have a lot of contacts in sort of the hip hop space too? Did you have a lot of friends that had, you know, made it at that point? Like what inspired that side? Well, they weren't friends. I was, I'm fortunate enough to say I had a lot of contacts, but most of those, you know, the good thing is I grew up in Hollis, Queens, and Hollis, Queens has, if I would run off the names of the people in Hollis, Queens, you would say, what the hell is in the water? Yeah. At that time, you know, it was Salt and Pepper, LL Cool J, Run DMC, um, some of the fat boys for, were from there, Tribe Called Quest, Onyx, you know, uh, so many other, uh, at least another 15, I could say, yeah. Ja Rule, 50 Cents, a lot of them. So some of them were my friends, you know, not not the big artists because LL Cool J and Run DMC were like massively huge I, and they were one generation older than me. And you know, that type of separation when you're in a neighborhood is pretty big when it's like, oh, that yeah. was from my brother's friends. But the ones I yeah. did grow up with and my closest friends were me and a guy named Irv Gotti who created something called Murder Inc. and another guy named Hype Williams who became a very famous video director. And we would go on tours when we were about 16 years old, be on the Raising Hell tour or some of these tours, uh, the Fresh Fest tour, some of the first tours in the United States when it came to rap. And that's where I started to really get an understanding of that there was an escape from the hood that didn't have anything to do with drugs and you can actually make money doing something you love. Yep. But I couldn't rap. I could dance. I actually had uh, audition for Houdini to be yep. a dancer for a group named Houdini and they said, okay. And my mother said, no, I'm not. You're 16 years old. You're not going around the world on a tour. So they ended up picking up hiring a kid named uh, Jermaine Dupree out of Atlanta for that tour. Heard of him. Um, <laughs> yeah. So until today, I, you know, I know Jermaine now, but I was, and I found out when I saw him in one of those videos, I was like, man, that could have been me. Yeah. Crazy. Got it. And so did you, what your first outlet for launching FUBU, was it the, you know, having those relationships with the director and having those tours in your background that you went to the, the people you had met along that way to get it out there? How'd you start? No, my first relationship was standing on a corner and selling it to people. And then it was uh, realizing that I had enough money to buy maybe 50 shirts. And if I would have dressed all the cool kids and the rappers in the neighborhood with the 50 shirts, they may or may not wear them. If they wore them, they would wear them once and give them away. So I made sure that I bought a bunch of 4X, 5X, and 6X. And I gave it to the big bodyguards and the big guys in the neighborhood because 
they didn't have fashionable stuff to wear. They only had, you know, limited styles at Rochester, big and tall, big white shirt, big black shirt. And they would wear that shirt 10 times a month. And those guys would be in front of the red rope at a club, in front of a stage, in front of the cameras at a music video, and in front of the artists because they were normally bodyguards or big guys. They were walking billboards. And that was the first place that I would, those were my influence. I found a sub-segment of a sub-segment of a market on people who are not being addressed and valued in in the way that they should be. And I made them feel special. And how did you find those guys? Was it just you went to the shows, into the clubs, and grabbed a guy up front? Went to the shows, went to the clubs, and when I when I realized that you know we were on a video set and they were kicking everybody else else off, I said, not only am I here to dress the artist, big man, I'm here to dress you. I got a shirt for you, and they were like, all right, kick everybody else off except for this little guy right here. <laughs> Perfect, made friends. And so, how long did it take to start to get traction? Give me the story there. Like you got the first fifty shirts, you dressed some guys. Like how did it get going from there? Well, like I said, I started in 89. I closed it down several times till 1992. And I started getting traction around 95, 94, 95. Cause 92, 92, 93 was a very busy year for us where we got put in a lot of videos. We got put in a Wu-Tang video, a Method Man video, a Mariah Carey video, Brand Nubians and Miss Jones, and I think two other videos. And by and then I think 93, 94, we got put in the LL Hey Lover video and that was where all the kids were seeing their latest and greatest getting their information from music videos yep. right you weren't seeing any information on the news the internet didn't exist and social yep. media wasn't out there yet so by those videos being in heavy rotation right around 94 95 we really started getting public recognition of who are these guys and then we started getting local interviews and the local interviews added to more videos and the more videos added to more local interviews yep. and then you would really start to get you would see us in a heavy way uh, we i think we would sign our distribution and manufacturing deal 96 and 97 then food was started to really get to become nationwide 98 would become uh we, we started shipping globally got it it sounds like there was actually as you said traction hit in 95 so those videos you didn't have like it didn't blow out open the walls right away or did it like when you were in 92 93 you were starting to get all these different videos did it not really blow it wide open because i guess you didn't have d to c back then you started to get into stores or get distribution Absolutely. So first of all, we had limited funding and a little bit of limited manufacturing. Uh, we weren't mm-hmm. shipping really for the most part nationally. So we were just building a vacuum, you know, we were in a vacuum, you know, really much in the video. People were just like, well, what is this? What is this? I mean, the anticipation was growing. And I would, you know, looking from the outside in, I would assume that the kids are all around the country and around the world would see all these New York rappers with this yep. brand. And they would say, what is that brand? That brand is just a New York brand, probably. And you know, as it started to spread, then once it started hitting the stores, it was pent up demand of three, four, five years of these kids seeing it and not being able to get it. And again, like you said, there was no really no B2C at that time, meaning I couldn't sell it directly to them. So this is where they were getting it. My mom used to actually dress me in FUBU and in the mid 90s. I love this stuff. So um, <laughs> but thinking back, I, I had FUBU too. So right, it sounds like right when it took off. So you, you went global in 98. Did you end up raising money ever for it? Did you, as an investor now, did no. you ever have any investors? None? No, we never raised money for it because we ended up we ended up finding a really great deal with a manufacturer and distributor. So we kind of skipped that process. Got it. And I assume that deal was like good net terms and things so you could finance using them. Is that, got yeah. it. Well, awesome. And so after 98, give me the story. What happened next? How, how did it keep scaling? Like, would love the timeline. Yeah, 98, we started to take on licenses. So licenses, whether it be the categories of boots, bags, 
ladies, you know, boys, fragrance <laughs> and things of that nature, betting. And also we would license out territories. You know, you can have these three countries. Uh, you have to, you know, the, you have to build freestanding stores within five years, X amount of freestanding stores. Yeah. And that's how we started to scale. After and how that, did you learn that? Like, where did that, did you have great mentors or people around you or where did you learn to do all yeah, that. absolutely. Our manufacturing distrib and distribution partner, a guy named Norman and Bruce, had already been in the business for many, many years. They were, they were second generation of people who were making clothes. So they already knew a lot of that stuff. But we were also learning together, but, uh, you know, and growing together. So that's what happened. Uh, but we also, you know, right around 2000, we looked and realized that, of course, fashion is fickle and the FUBU would probably slow down like most brands do, whether you talk about Lee's or Levi's or Benetton or FUBU or whatever the case is. It's got this you know kind of wave that goes like this and it comes back obviously and we decided to uh, start investing in other brands because we knew what our skill set was our skill set was not that we were the best designers of the world but we knew manufacturing and distribution and marketing so we partnered up and acquired partnered or acquired brands like Willie Esco and Coogee and Heather Ed and even Ted Baker we took the license for Ted Baker in the United States but we didn't do really well because we weren't retail operators and they wanted to build retail stores I think they're doing it good right now with yeah. the retail stores we took Kappa the, the soccer brand but yep. uh, soccer never took off in the United States the way it, it, we would hope it would so you know we would uh, you know fall short on probably you know eight of the ten that we picked but and that's just the process that's a venture yeah um, yeah got it and so did you ever end up selling Fubo or do you still own it today no, we never sold it. A big rumor that um, people thought that we did sell the company. We never sold it, nice. you know, for, for many reasons, whether it wasn't a time or the right buyer, because, you know, it, it is something, it, it, it's our baby. And we feel that, you know, there's a legacy there that people need to, you know, understand. And we never sold it. We, we know what we do. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And so fast forwarding, when did Shark Tank start? Shark Tank started, I believe, 2008. We're going on our 13th season. Okay. So I think it first airing was 2009. Okay. We shot it in 2008. Yeah. And how did that come to be for you? Like where did, was it already a show and Mark Burnett would, had figured out this thing or was it, you had an idea, like we'd love to know where that got started. Yeah, it was already a, it was already a very popular show. It was already in three territories. It was, uh, it came out of Japan and then it was huh. also doing really well in London in England. And then it was also one of the top shows in Canada at the oh, time. So is that so, Dragon's Den uh, it or is it, what's it called? Shark Tank? Correct. Dragon's Den. It's called I'm Dragon's sorry. Den in yeah. those territories. Yep. I believe it was called Tiger's Den in Japan at first. Got it. Okay, got it. So I, I always thought that they came after. And so it was already popular there. And then how did you get, did they approach you? Did you hear about it? How did you get involved with it? Yeah. So they approached me, they called me up and asked me to part of it. And I said, all right, no problem. I'll try it. And, uh, and I never thought the show would work, but yeah, they approached me. <laughs> That's how it goes. So, and how has that, so it sounds like at that point, this was during that period when you were buying other brands and looking to operate other brands. Is that fair? No, at that period, at that time, it was the fact that the market was, we were going into the Great Recession and nobody was buying clothes when they couldn't pay their mortgage. Yeah. So I was looking, I went into Shark Tank looking to get other opportunities, meaning I was only getting pitched clothing lines and I'd rather get pitched, you know, something else that I could take the department store so I can gain more real estate in the department store. Seeing I already had the relationships with the department store, I can say, hey, give me this space in electronics or lotions or bedding or plateware or something else like that. So it was really out of me trying to diversify my portfolio. Got it. Awesome. And so what's been the experience like early on to how did that change your career, change your path, so to speak, having that TV platform? You know, it, it, it changed in perception, perception of us 
you know, every, we, you know, a lot of people are always put in a box, and you know, people thought that maybe you know, just because I happen to make oversized jeans for the rap community, that maybe that's all I was. And I think that you know, as people started to see television as well as uh, the sharks, they realized that the fundamentals of business are the fundamentals of business, no matter what business you're in. Also, you know, when I go on the show to hopefully get some great deals. I realize that we have a bigger responsibility because there's a lot of kids watching the show, a lot of families sitting on the edge of the seats for hope, and that the show is more inspirational than a great deal. And then we get caught up in the in the great benefit of being able to invest in other people's dreams and know that as we invest in their dreams, we will win or we will fail, but there are other people that will come out of that world as a viewer and, and go out and become, you know, the next leader, the next generation of leaders and entrepreneurs. And it's a great, it's a great feeling. So we learned that we were there to motivate people as well. Yep. Which I, I mean, I've watched a lot. You guys definitely do. And I think you motivate a ton of the audience. I mean, I think it's incredible what that show has done at a time when entrepreneurship became such a draw. I don't think pre 2010, give or take, entrepreneurship had the same sort of black red word sex appeal. Like, you know, we, I, I just yeah. wrote an article for Rolling Stone around the idea that entrepreneurs have become the new rock stars in the past decade. And before that, it wasn't necessarily people grew up aspiring to be a rock star, you know, whether it's musician or athlete or astronaut, which, you know, I think astronaut would be a good thing still too, and all of it, but entrepreneur was never in their vernacular. And now you hear kids saying they want to, you know, get into tech at eight years old yeah. and things like that. So I think it's really cool what you guys have built because I think you, you guys do play a big role in that, guys and girls. And so over time, I, I'm wondering, like, how has that changed your career? I know you do a ton of speaking now. You've obviously written books and all these other things. Like, did was that really opened your mind up to the sort of idea of personal brand and building out a platform for yourself? Or has that more expanded your investment portfolio? Like, how has things shifted over the past, you know, 13 years since you started that? Well, it's, it's done it all, right? But it, it, did, it hasn't done anything that I wasn't already somewhat doing. I mean, the reason why they saw me on Donnie Deutsch and those shows was I was out there talking about my first book. So I was already an author, you know, and the book was on entrepreneurship. As I shared with you, I was already investing in companies. So I was doing that as well. Speaking, I had already done speaking a little bit prior to that, but because of the, you know, not necessarily having the big platform, it was easy for people to say, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And now it, it made it, it affirmed more because of the, uh, they, they've had hundreds of hours of watching me to say, I guess he doesn't know what he's talking about or, you know, or don't book him because, you know, we see that he doesn't know. But, it, you know, at least it gave them the evidence and or the history to be able to be com more confident in what they've done uh, in regards to me speaking. So none of it was necessarily fairly new, but is it all being done on a much higher level? Yes. Was I known? Was I, house was I a household name? No. Was I known? Yes. Yeah. You know, did I know I, I, what I've written, what I've been, you know, on my fifth book now? Probably not. I probably wrote two, yeah. you know, yeah. so it, it, all, all of it has just been, you know, heightened. Yeah, that makes sense. And as far as investments go, it sounds like from what I know, Bombas has been the best one. Or is, are there other great investments that you've had off there? Yeah, listen, I have a lot of great investments, but Bombas yeah. is clearly the one because not only the size of it, but from the fact that I've learned from it as well, you know, about, yeah. you know, how to solve a, a social issue and not solve a social issue, address a social issue, how to deal uh, B2C, you know, yeah. as we said, I wasn't doing that earlier in my career, how to use social media for good, how yeah. the consumer now has changed their, their thought process and, and who they invest in and who they buy from. 
Yeah, we met Dave about the same time, and he's such a good guy, too, to back. Like, you bet on a great jockey, too. And I remember talking to him back then when I was getting started pretty much, too, on my company now and trying to figure out a way to help him and just literally ending the conversation with, you know what, you're doing everything right. You got this. I can't help you. Call me if you need me. I'm here to support you, but thanks for the time kind of thing. He's close friends with a lot of my good buddies, too. So I've just always admired what a good down-to-earth guy he is, too. He's a good human. Him and and Randy are just good human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And so sort of bringing us up to now, what's kind of, you know, a day in the life or a year in the life look like? Like what kind of things are you focused on aside from the show? I know it's obviously still going, but what kind of things are on your plate? What are you looking at these days? Yeah, well, of course, the show, the show takes up a certain amount of time than any of my other privately held companies or that that I that I'm in. Then, you know, who I advise or sit on boards for or or just, you know, are trying to help them with their narrative, what's going on, where can I be either the public facing person because obviously that, that has more value to certain things and my family and my health. Those those are generally, you know, how I cut them up. Yeah. So so basically a lot of time investing and advising for those investments, spending time with them is on a professional side, obviously family and health always very important. But on the professional side, is it really focused on that aside from filming Shark Tank? Is that fair? Well, you know, I have my own company, right? So we have everything from curriculums to FUBU to other investments that people may not publicly see. So Mm -hmm. I have my Shark Tank investments, which is very, those are very specific because what happens is if I do the handshake deal on 15 companies a year, well, I got to drill down on on 10 because five probably fall aside for due diligence purposes. And then out of the 10, maybe three of the don't air. So now I got to drill down on seven that I don't, you know, if I wasn't on Shark Tank, well, we can take our time and see how these things go but if you're going to air april 1 and you know we didn't close everything up we gotta we gotta so those take a lot of time then you got the the show business i'm shooting the show promoting the show you know all the interviews that come along that takes up about that can easily take up three months of, of my life so Makes now sense. i have the other three quarters of the year to focus on family and health and you know whatever we might doing in my private life and then the other half of the year is you know my brands that i personally own and then the other the other quarter, the last quarter is where I'm frontward facing or representing or consulting other brands. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome. Well, just two last questions for you. Number one, what's next? What do you want in the future? What are you looking towards? What are you building towards and excited about? More ways to uh, bring value to people that are doing great things in the world, charitable organizations or people who are trying to create real change or organizations that are trying to create change, whether it be, you know, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, equality, gender equality, things of that nature. I think uh, I want to I am going to spend more time doing that type of stuff. Of course, I can't take my eye off the ball of all the great partners that allowed me to invest in them. And last but not least is hopefully, you know, get out there and make some great more investments and hopefully motivate some people that feel like they've been marginalized and they haven't had their shot. And to say, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Beautiful. And on that note, last question for anybody trying to get started, you know, sort of get out of their own way, whatever it is, what's sort of that one piece of advice you have that isn't sort of cliche? Like, is there something that you're like, I really wish someone told me this, or I think this is the most important thing people need to know that they don't normally hear? Yeah, it's not cliche, but it is really firmly, simultaneously do your homework and and, and start taking steps forward in whatever you're trying to do and try to use little to zero money. That's a very that's a very important discipline that you must have. And if you say that it's impossible to do it, well, then you're not 
set to do it. But if you take on that challenge and say, all right, I'm going to do my homework, I'm going to take affordable steps, and I'm going to figure this thing out without a massive amount of money. And if you do that and you start to see things unravel and say, all right, well, I did it with no money, but if I put a little $200 in and $500 in, okay, I can see it grow. And once you perfect it in this way to a very small audience, you can replicate that around the world like I did. As you said, did I raise money? No. I perfected what I was doing with those big guys, with eight stores in New York City. That's it. Yep. And instead of trying to get 16 stores or 28 stores or whatever cases, concentrating on those eight stores. So I kept building those eight stores and building everything I was doing. So now I didn't, I wasn't selling just t-shirts there. I was selling t-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, da, 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 and just the eight stores. Then I was able to get that deal to replicate it across the country and across the world by just focusing very, very small, as we call it, proof of concept. Yep. Love that. Great advice. Well, Damon, thank you so much for being on Hawk Talk. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, brother. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.